Look around, what do you see? Cars, lots of them. And guess what? They're probably on Auto Trader. Whether you're into timeless classics or the latest trends, did somebody say solar-powered, eco-friendly, vegan, leather-wrapped, aromatherapy-scented, disco ball-equipped, self-driving car? If you see it on the road, you can likely find it on Auto Trader. Big cars, small cars, blue cars, new cars, used cars, electric cars, and one day, maybe even flying cars. With millions of options to choose from, buying a car becomes a whole lot easier. See it. Find it. Auto Trader. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hi, yeah, 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 and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh, and there's Chuck. And Jerry's hanging out here wearing a giant sombrero, and that makes this stuff you should know. I was actually going to sing that. That's funny that you thought of the same dang thing. That's that's the one. That's the one that I've you know I grew up on. Yeah, I think I told the story once before about when uh, it's funny how these things you remember from your childhood. Mm-hmm. When I was in kindergarten. They taught us the Mexican hat dance, <laughs> yeah. and we danced around, uh, not hats, but spray can lids. Like, a, like like spray paint lids. Why? Because, you know, we didn't have little sombreros. Okay. And it's one of those things where looking back, like, God bless them, they were teaching us about another culture, mm-hmm. which is great for a five-year-old, but, like, looking back, all these you know, white suburban Atlanta kids dancing around <laughs> spray paint, spray paint can lids yeah. is a little, little cringe. It's an, it's a weird, like added detail, but I'll bet it was still adorable to see, you know, it's an odd substitute. Like we didn't decorate them. I would get that. They were just the lids, <laughs> right? No brims or anything like that. So it's more, uh, more of like a fez dance. Yeah, sure. It was like a fest hit, minus the tassel. So, Chuck, I just want to say, um, if this pick is from your recent trip to the Yucatan, that is the vacation that just keeps giving. <laughs> no, it's not at all. We, we heard no mariachi down there. No? Uh, I don't know why I thought of this. I'm not sure, other than the fact that it's a music that I like, mm-hmm. and it's a fun, like, uh, when people are over and it's a Friday night where happy hour and up some cocktails. Mm -hmm. Putting on a mariachi mix is always a good move. Sure. Uh, And, you know, when I lived in L.A., I lived in a a Mexican neighborhood, in a a largely Mexican neighborhood, in a 100% Mexican or Mexican-American apartment complex. I was the only gringo there. Oh, wow. And so the, the music was just blaring out at all times. And I... Really got tired of it for a while, mm-hmm. but it was in getting tired of it that I got an appreciation for it and ending up loving it, if that makes sense. That's really cool. Yeah, it does make sense, actually. You uh, subsumed it. By attrition, I guess, yeah. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, this was your pick. Um, I don't know that I ever would have gotten around to this one because I'm not like a huge mariachi fan. I've got nothing against it, but 
uh, like my exposure to mariachi is sadly like Speedy Gonzalez um, cartoons and like Mexican restaurant visits. But now that I've researched it some, I have kind of developed more of an appreciation of it than I had before. But one of the things that struck me about it, Chuck, is that if you listen to like old mariachi mm-hmm. and like relatively new mariachi, like mm-hmm. there's a some there's something about it. there's like a through line where it's very clearly the same kind of music after decades and decades, centuries, yeah. really, you could say. Um, and I think that's really cool that it's not like, like I went to look for disco mariachi. Of and, course you did. And yeah, <laughs> it doesn't exist. Like I yeah. found some, I found like a mariachi band doing covers of some disco favorites, like, you know, <laughs> but yeah. it was still mostly disco with a little bit more horn than, than normal. Um, but it's like a really like, I don't want to say unchanged because it's definitely evolved and in, in other kinds of merged with other kinds, you know. But but it, it's you can recognize it from 1900 to 1990 as mariachi music. Yeah, and you know, I think one of the through lines that I saw, and this is something we talked a little bit about uh, before we recorded, was, and I think the name of this episode I've already titled the, the Rodney Dangerfield of musical genres. <laughs> but it's a it's a genre that I think is always worked at gaining respect globally and mm-hmm. among, you know, uh, the intelligentsia and the classical community. And I think part of that is rooted in uh, some just inherent racism that America feels toward Mexico, mm-hmm. which I think is just something that's that's just there. It's a country that is our closest neighbor, obviously Canada as well, but mm-hmm. uh, it's an interesting place in that you know, 50% of the country, I think, since the pandemic lives below the poverty line. But it's also like a top 10 country economically, globally, hmm. uh, which was hard to believe. So it's Mexico, I think, has a lot of people living in poverty and a lot of very wealthy people. So a big wealth gap there. Uh, and this music is a part of their proud tradition. And I think little things have happened over the years, and we'll talk about a lot of them that have helped kind of uh, up the respect anti where it's not just uh, Mexican restaurant music right. to to people here and around the world. And yeah. I think like movies like Coco coming along, like just little things like that have happened over the years. It really helped kind of bring it to the fore where people realize what a kind of cool music it is. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and yeah, that's that just because, you know, people's exposure to it is strictly in Mexican restaurants doesn't mean like that's where it exists. Like it's moved into concert halls. Um, uh, it's moved into like schools and colleges. Like it's 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 definitely gained a lot of respect. But I think what you're saying is 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 correct you know largely that there is a certain sense of if not racism at least xenophobia or a sense of foreignness that, yeah. that probably prevents like the average waspy american from getting really deep into mariachi um, but i think also in this this stands for mexico too that it's a it's a classist thing too because mariachi sure. music is rooted in the rural areas it's a proud rural worker tradition it's like mm-hmm. super um, egalitarian in that sense. And, yeah, yeah. you know, people of, you know, certain classes, they don't like that kind of stuff. They find it lowbrow or they, they, it doesn't appeal to them or whatever. And so I think that even as mariachi has evolved over the decades, that same old kind of grudge or view that's become outdated over time to a large extent still remains among some people. Agreed. This is one of our best intros yet. <laughs> All right. So let's go back to the beginning, huh? Where'd mariachi come from? 
Uh, well, and by the way, we're, I'm, I've really worked on a lot of these pronunciations. I'm going to do my best, but uh, as always, we, we try. We're, we're going to try, but yeah, there's a lot of pronunciation challenges up in this one. All up in here? Mm-hmm. Uh, so we got to go back to colonial Mexico, and the original form of the music came, and this is pretty obvious, is uh, obviously some Spanish influence, but something that may surprise folks is that also enslaved Africans uh, that the Spanish brought to the colonies, a lot of the rhythmic traditions of that music is present in the origins of mariachi as well. Yeah, and uh, there, a lot of people say, plus there was indigenous music at the time, so those things all just kind of blended and gelled together, which is pretty um, appropriate for mariachi, as we'll see over the decades. Like, it's they, they've not hesitated to be like, oh, I really like that sound, or I didn't think of using that instrument and incorporating it to make a new a new sound. Yeah, but, yeah, totally. Um, you got to go to Western Mexico uh, to uh, Jalisco, uh, where we talk about a musical form called Son Jalisciense. I know I got that one right because yeah. I practiced it over and over. Me too. Uh, and well, they I want to take you know, a crack. I don't want to have no, no practice for nothing. Jalisciense. Yeah, very nice. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> um, I think we should each pronounce everything. <laughs> okay. <laughs> And then Jerry can just blend them together, <laughs> add a little uh, guitaron yeah. on top of it, yeah, and we're all set. Yeah. Uh, so that music was happening in Jalisco and Western Mexico, but it was, you know, similar kinds of music were happening in other places in Mexico. Mm-hmm. And like you said, these were farm workers. They would play for special occasions. They would. Uh, it's interesting in, in the early mariachi did not have horns, which is. Almost hard to believe because right. horns are so vital to it now. But uh, violins, guitar, and harp were sort of the first mariachi instruments. Yeah, mostly string string ensembles, right? And they yeah. were they were songs performed by the peasant class working on haciendas. And at the time before the the Mexican Revolution um, that ran roughly from 1910 to 1920, um, there was. Uh, a feudal system, essentially, that that, that was the hacienda. Um, and the people who worked on those haciendas were very much exploited. But one of mm-hmm. the jobs you could have is a mariachi performer. I got the impression, like, if you were a mariachi performer, that was your job. You didn't necessarily work in the fields or do anything else. That was the role you played on the hacienda. And the thing is, that kind of um, inequality is just unsustainable. It doesn't matter what century you live in. It doesn't matter what country you live in. Eventually, as one group is just so thoroughly exploited by another group, the the exploited group's going to revolt, and that was the basis of the Mexican Revolution. That It was a class revolution where the workers rebelled and said, no more, you're not going to exploit us anymore. Right, and as you'll see, they wrote a lot of music about this stuff. Right. uh, In the form of the mariachi songs. But um, Cocula which is in Jalisco outside of Guadalajara is um, where some people say it started, even though you can't draw like written history there. Uh, If you want to look at the word in print, which is something we always seem to talk about first time we see things written down. uh, It is a letter from a Catholic priest in 1852 that was denouncing it, Mm -hmm. basically saying, you know, these big drunken festivals and this music that you're doing uh, is a problem. Please cut it out. <laughs> right. Signed, local crank priest. Exactly. So um, th- that was, the, like you said, the first time in print, right? And I think yeah. before that, it was a, a local place name. 
Um, but really, mariachi, as we understand it, uh, the word, uh, the etymology, I guess, has long been kind of disputed. And here's the little fun fact I had no idea about. Uh, the French, as in France, occupied Mexico from 1862 to 1866. Did you know that? Sure. You knew that? I did. I think I've seen that in movies. I had no That's idea. The only reason I would know anything. So, so during that four-year um, occupation of Mexico by the French, apparently local musicians would be hired to perform at weddings. So there was a long-standing myth that the word mariachi was a kind of a local butchering of the French word mariage. Yeah, not true. No, that's not it. There's actually, the the um, answer's a lot cooler. I think. Well, the, they still don't know for sure. I mean, my money is on the tree. Is that what you were talking about? <laughs> yeah. What else could it possibly be? I don't know, because there's a tree. It's separated out differently, but it is the word mariachi. It's just mariachi. That sounded Although Italian. That sounded Jeff. totally Italian. <laughs> That's a spicy the, mariachi. I probably put the stress on the wrong thing, but that was a tree that legend has it, or people say at least, uh, was the wood that they made the instruments out of. And that, I don't know, that seems pretty convincing to me. For sure. It was an indigenous Cora word, too. So hats off to them as well. Um, there's another, there's one more that I'm like, I don't know about this one. But they're, they're like, no, the chi is from the Cora language, but the maria uh, refers to the Virgin Mary and that these were religious songs at first. I didn't see anything about these being particularly religious at any point in time, did you? Not really. I mean, I'm sure there are religious mariachi songs, but I've, most of the stuff I've seen is about like working on the farm or these love ballads mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Yeah, or just getting, you know, crunk. Getting down. Yeah. <laughs> so, like I said, the hacienda system, I don't believe it actually ended, but I think it was very much disrupted during and right after the um, revolution. And as a result, there was, you know, a lot of people who were displaced as workers, including mariachi musicians who no longer had like a regular gig on the local hacienda. And so whenever there's a disruption in the countryside, those people tend to make it toward city centers to see if there's work or other ways to support themselves. So there's a big influx of people to Mexico City around the 19-teens and, and 20s. And a lot of them were mariachi musicians, and they brought their different traditions with them. Because depending on what state you're talking about, each state has its own kind of musical mariachi tradition. And sure. in that in that era in, in Mexico City is when they first started to really kind of blend together. Yeah, I think, I mean, mm -hmm. I love this kind of thing where different, whether it's food or musical styles, when different people of different cultures all of a sudden are living among each other and start sharing opinions and ideas. Mm -hmm. uh, that's just, I don't know, I think the, the best stuff in history is created that way. Right. And that's what happened there, and they brought their musics together. This is when band sizes grew. Uh, it was not necessarily like a quartet like it had been. Uh, all of a sudden, you could see mariachi in the, you know, like 12 people playing in a band. Mm -hmm. This, and big-time game-changer, this is when horns came into the mix. Uh, and, you know, basically, this was, what, 19-teens, you said? Yeah, Ten and 20s, maybe. Yeah, mariachi would never be the same after the introduction of those trumpets. No, for sure. Um, and apparently, in pretty short order, they figured out how to do, you know, more than one trumpet, as we'll see. There's actually one band that was responsible for that. But one of the other things they started doing, too, was wearing charros, those um, cowboy outfits 
the very like slick cowboy outfits with like the short waistcoat and the tight pants and the ankle length boots and a wide bow tie and a big sombrero that that emerged from this era as well too where all of a sudden these guys were in the big city wearing peasant garb with straw hats just was probably a little gauche all of a sudden and they were making pretty good money so you could outfit like a dozen mariachi musicians in matching outfits and you know probably attract even more money because people would want to hire you because you had that kind of thing going on and it became a tradition pretty quick can i admit something yeah if it were not for uh being accused of cultural appropriation mm-hmm. i would wear chato clothing at every fancy event i ever went to so <laughs> i think it's so cool looking i love it mm-hmm. Uh, and I think I might just have to settle for a nudie suit. Uh, you know what those are? No, a birthday you, suit, you mean? No, you probably do. It was There was a tailor, uh, and he was a lot of things. In fact, he might make an interesting episode one day named Nudie Cone. Oh, okay. And he made these suits that uh, – like Graham Parsons wore and rhinestone cowboy type stuff with oh, like cool. ro- roses embroidered on the suits sure. and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so nudie suits became really popular with like uh, the earliest alt country scene and like rodeos and stuff. So, I, so I, I think I could get away with a nudie uh, suit. Okay, but why? Be- you're not part of the cowboy culture. You're appropriating that. Why is it any different? Like why couldn't you just wear a charo suit? I think that if you think something is I deeply don't know. cool and you're wearing it I know. out of respect and because you think it's super cool, not because well, – for whatever reason, if you're just positively wearing something, I don't see how somebody could legitimately accuse you of cultural appropriation. And if they did, I think they'd be wrong. No, I'm with you. It would be from fear of being accused of that more right. than anything. Just being accused. I think because people would probably think like Tom Hanks showing up in big in that thing. They would think I was being funny or making a joke where I'm like, no, I actually think I look really cool because this is a really cool <laughs> suit. And the tailors that make this stuff are amazing. And I would love to show it off. So the difference would be you would show up and just not say anything about your Charo suit. I don't know. That would be the way to do it. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Because you're not trying to be like, hey, get a load of this get up. You're just like, this is what I'm wearing. If I were wearing a a regular suit, I wouldn't say anything about that. So I definitely shouldn't have a squirting flower in my lapel. (laughs) No. Or like a little spray paint can cap that you do a little hat dance around. Yeah. I would have a little elastic cord that hangs like like (laughs) a little tiny bellhop hat. Totally. Uh, no. Anyway, I just think those are super cool, and I think nudie suits would be maybe a short stuff. Okay. I'm glad you explained nudie because I didn't catch that funny. T the first time. No, there's not a T. It's N-U-D-I-E. Oh, okay. So, yeah, that's exactly what yeah. I thought. <laughs> that was the guy's name. Hey, you want to take a break and come back because we're like 18 minutes into this great one. Hey, let's do it. Okay. We'll be right back, everybody. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. 
We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery. But that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily, as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So one more thing, Chuck, about the this kind of diaspora toward Mexico City. Mm-hmm. Um there was a there was there was a change in how they performed too. They started performing in like public places, in like bars and plazas, um, and they also started to be more mobile. They would move around 
in yeah, part sure. because the, they, they were busking, basically. So if there was a, a somebody that looked like they might be a paying customer, they might follow them around for a little bit and see if they could get them to pay for a song or request a song or something like that. So that mobility, the charo suits, and the expansion and, like, rearrangement of instruments, including the horns, those were all big things that happened in the 20s. Yeah, and I think that tradition, when you see a, a small mariachi quartet moving around a Mexican restaurant— mm-hmm. It's sort of rooted in that tradition, and I think that's another reason I didn't have an appreciation now that I remember back is whenever that happened when I was at dinner with my family and I was a kid, I could just see the air leave my dad's body, (laughs) and just like, he hated it so much. He hated any attention at all Mm -hmm. being like pointed publicly his way, Mm -hmm. Uh, like at Disney World, if they were like, let me pick somebody from the audience. If they ever looked at my dad, he would just shake his head. I can totally identify with that. (laughs) <laughs> not smile or anything. Whereas I could not be more different. I'm like raising my hand, <laughs> wanting to jump up and volunteer for whatever. And I love it when the mariachi comes by the table, even though Atlanta doesn't have nearly enough of that. No. Um, I, and I think just word of advice, if you never, if you feel awkward and you don't know, like, do I eat or not? Uh, yeah, you just keep eating and like smile at them and just enjoy the whole thing. I don't think it means, hey, stop what you're doing and only look at us. It's, it's a part of the lively atmosphere right. of enjoying the food. But you can also, if you're in your dad's mindset, order a double margarita stat. Uh, yeah, he didn't drink, though. Oh, well, yeah, I'll bet he was super uncomfortable. <laughs> he, yeah, he really didn't <laughs> he know how to do life. He was in the discomfort. Uh, so we're talking 1950s about this time, and as, uh, this is when we had a couple of trumpets come on the scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, we'll talk about the two gentlemen who worked out how to, how to do that. Uh, you had a few violins usually, and then you had two really key instruments um, that are basically ubiquitous in any mariachi. One is the uh, vihuela, which you might call a guitar, but it's a little different. It's smaller. It's got five strings. Uh, it's it's higher pitched, so the G, D, and A strings are all tuned an octave higher. Mm-hmm. So it, it sounds a little different, but it's got those nylon strings. Don't that, you also pick it? Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you strum it with your fingers as well, but... Okay. Uh, finger picking and strumming. Okay. Uh, and then you've got the really the heart of the band and the most important instrument is that guitaron mm-hmm. that I talked about. And that's that it sort of looks like a stand up bass with a super, super short neck that you are playing. It's really, really big bodied. And uh, this thing, though, is not plucked like a standard bass. Mm-hmm. It also has five strings, although there are some five string basses, but traditionally you think of a four string bass. Uh, it, but it's not plucked. You're playing uh, octaves on the strings with a guitar on. Yeah, and you're playing it like a guitar. So it looks like a hilarious oversized novelty guitar until you yeah. hear it, and then you're like, oh, okay, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, but that's the whole rhythm section because one thing you will never hear someone say is, did you get a load of that drummer in the mariachi band? <laughs> right, yeah, it's true. Yeah, because no drums. That, that huge, deep, hollow body like produces all of the sound you need from that. Yeah, it's it's pretty great and it's really a key. Some other things though you might you might overhear people saying at a mariachi show is, "Wow, wasn't that accordion player amazing or the French horn yeah. dude or mm-hmm. the flautist even?" Um because they like wind instruments and they like accordions and one of the things that they'll play as we'll see are things like waltzes, polkas, and that was because of the influence of um, German immigrants to northern Mexico and southern Texas mm-hmm. in the 19th century. That that, that music influenced uh, mariachi as well. That's right. Uh, one of the big 
uh, respect boxes was ticked in 2011 uh, when UNESCO came forward and said, uh, Mariachi, the string music, the song and the trumpet is now officially added to what is called the representative list of the intangible cultural heritage of humanity, which is a great sounding list. I love the whole intangible aspect. For sure. I went to a, um, a, a place in Kyoto um, that was like a bamboo forest, and UNESCO mm. added the sound of wind moving through that bamboo forest Ugh. to that same list. So it's kind of UNESCO you, at some point. We should, at the very least, we should do this list. We could yeah. just read it off and be like, "That one's awesome right. too." Here's another <laughs> awesome cool. one. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Okay, so yeah, that's a huge deal. I mean, and that was 2011. So mariachi, it's like this is this is never going anywhere, um, and it wasn't going to anyway. There was a, a guy who ran Jalisco's sec, um, Ministry of Culture. His name was Alejandro Cravioto, and he said at the time that there's no Mexican musical musical expression more widespread throughout the world. And he also said that it's so much a part of Mexican people's lives that they it, they hear it. It's played from their baptism to their burial. And yeah. it's absolutely true. They play baptisms, they play funerals, and they play everything in between, too. Yeah, but it's interesting. When that happened, there was a, a TV a musician and a TV host named uh, Cornelio Garcia. You like that? Mm-hmm. That said, when this happened, that said, you know, mariachi still isn't getting the respect among academics here in our own country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you'll see that's one of the sort of recurring themes over and over is within Mexico itself, it, it's gained more acceptance in the U.S. than it has in some parts of Mexico among higher classes. Yeah, and I think that's that kind of classist grudge that I was yeah. referring to. It's still around, you know? Because, yep. again, it's the music of the revolution, and the revolution was the revolution of the peasants, and it's really right. <laughs> prideful, yeah. uh, patriotic music, you know, in a lot of ways, too. And it's the music of Mexico. There's a mariachi song called El Son de la Negra, and it's um, considered That's Mexico's second national anthem. Yeah. So it's it's like it's just so woven into the fabric that, yeah, it's pretty tough. Like, if, if you live in Mexico, if you're born and raised Mexican— intellectual and you don't like mariachi i'm sure you just have a miserable life down there <laughs> you're the mexican version of my dad <laughs> yeah. uh so you mentioned the different musical sounds incorporating things like waltz and polka uh fandango is also another uh, like these african rhythms that we were talking about mm-hmm. and they have you know obviously the ballads and the waltzes and things like that but some other uh sort of song styles uh, one of them is called a ranchera, yeah. and these were very much songs of the Mexican Revolution. These are the ones that are really the patriotic songs of the peasant class, talking about how great. And th- that's what's so cool about it too is like these songs weren't talking about. Maybe some did, but it seems like they were never talking about oppression. They were celebrating the farm and celebrating ranch life and stuff like that. Right. Exactly. Yeah, and romanticizing it, you could even say. Um, there's a very famous song called uh, Volver, Volver, I think is maybe how you'd say it. Sure. It was, I didn't practice that one. <laughs> it was very famously performed by a guy named Vincente Fernandez, known as El Rey de la Musica Ranchera. And this guy is my speed. Like, he, he looks like a total tough guy from the 70s, but he also uh-huh. looks like he probably smells really good. Yeah. And he's, like, um, singing this, this, like, one plaintive love song where his heart's clearly broken 
um, in a Mexican restaurant with a horse in there with him. And he plays his song on the jukebox and starts singing it. And it's really awesome. So I really kind of like Vincente Fernandez as of yesterday. Yeah, that's a good song. Uh, I remember hearing a lot of ballads when I lived in uh, Yuma. I My sort of best friend for that year was this guy named Mark. And this was like a big cultural shift for me to all of a sudden my best friend was this Mexican guy. Mm-hmm. And I hung out at his house a lot and just got kind of thrown into like the real deal culture as opposed to the kid dancing around the spray paint uh, lid. <laughs> and it was just, they were all so sweet and so nice. And and Mark's dad, like I remember seeing this picture on the fridge of Mark's dad in the 70s. And he was like, he had these sideburn chops mm-hmm. and was riding a chopper motorcycle <laughs> and was wearing like a beaded vest. And I was like, do you have any idea how much cooler your dad is than mine? <laughs> and it was like, your dad was, it's just like the coolest looking dude I've ever seen. And I remember, like, his mom would play these great Mexican uh, mariachi ballads. And I I like the ballads okay. I really like the upbeat upbeat stuff a lot more. But Mm -hmm. it's kind of fun. It's like these these ballads are so, like, sort of slow and languid and syrupy. And you could they just feel very sincere. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Like, in in some some places, gut-wrenching. In uh, last June— uh, a bunch of mariachi, I think something like 50 of them, showed up at Uvalde oh, yeah. to basically sing um, and mm-hmm. just uh, just to, to mourn with everybody there. And there's plenty of videos on it. And if you want to just have your guts wrenched, like, go watch that. It's, yeah. it's just really amazing how um, just applicable this music is to all these different, like, um, events or, yeah. or occasions, you know? Yeah, it's, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, that song you were singing, by the way, the or you kind of Lou Reed sang it the, with the I, 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 I. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that is very famous ranchera, and that song is uh, uh, Cielito Lindo. Uh-huh. That's the, uh, that's the sh- one that everyone has heard. Everyone has heard either that or La Cucaracha, sure. which is not a ranchera. Uh, that is called a corrido. Yeah, so I- I'm not 100% certain that there's a clear dividing line between rancheras and corridos. Because that Volver Volver song is it tells a story, so that's one of yeah. the defining characteristics of a corrido. It's a ballad, and it's not necessarily just about like love lost or even love gain. They can be about sure. crime. It can be about um, heroism. And I saw in, on a site called uh, Remezcla um, that that's usually paired with like a moral lesson of some sort. So it's like a ballad, basically, is the is the best way to put it, as we already did. Yeah, and you know what? This is a great time to mention that I was wrong. We had our sort of uh, ballad disagreement a while back when I said that ballads were love songs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we had a lot of people write in that were like, no, no, no. Like your own Billy Joel, Chuck, sang the ballad of Billy the Kid. Mm-hmm. And uh, the ballad of Curtis Lowe by Leonard Skinner. They're like these, they're just story songs. But I think I just was thinking more love ballads, and that's a subgenre. Sure, yeah. So correction made. So wait a minute. Were they saying Josh was right? Oh, yeah, you were way right. How did I miss this bunch of emails then? I, had, I forgot to frame them and send them to you. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I, I have like a filter set on my Outlook. Right. <laughs> Anytime it says the phrase Josh is right or any variation, it goes right to the top of right. my inbox. <laughs> you, have, uh, you have searches out for the words correct. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I hit up people who've already sent in listener mail just to kind of pro- goad them into sending those kind of emails. 
Uh, and then the final little style that we'll cover is one we mentioned at the beginning, uh, the Son Halasin uh, Silencia, and that is the original folk style. Yeah, that's that. Yeah, the El Son de la Negra, the second um, national anthem of Mexico. And that's usually accompanied by a dance called Zapatiedo. Hey, I nailed it first time. I would say Tiado. Oh, man. <laughs> I actually surprised myself. I had that, like, um, like I'm little orphan right. Annie, like, right. like <laughs> surprised look, and I still didn't get it right. <laughs> Come here, Sandy. Come here, girl. <laughs> right. But that's like a, a heel-stomping foot dance that's pretty cool if you uh, just look that up. Um, that's what we were doing in kindergarten. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. <laughs> I got you. You're doing the— It's still so embarrassing. Zapada Tiado. I guess uh, we called it the Mexican hat dance, which is probably wrong, too. <laughs> I'm quite sure it was. It sounds, yeah, of those two, I'm pretty sure Mexican hat dance is the wronger in 1970s America of those. Uh, that's right. I guess the last thing we should mention about the music um, itself, like the sound, is one of my favorite parts of this or any music, which is multiple voices singing together. Uh I love choral music. I love three, four, five-part harmonies. Mm-hmm. I love, there probably is no such thing as five-part harmony. Oh, I, why not? I don't know. Is there a limit? I don't think so. Only in your mind. <laughs> oh, whoa. Hold yeah. on. <laughs> uh, yeah, but there's, there aren't, I mean, there are, there are singers that have backing mariachi bands, mm-hmm. but they're in a mariachi band. There is, typically not what's called a lead singer that someone may take a lead on the song but it's usually a lot of people singing at once yeah it's like chicago basically everybody can sing right and they take turns That's right and robert lamb you'll actually um, you'll actually see uh like you know a guy stop playing um, his trumpet and move to the front and start singing on a, on a new song. Like, that's just kind of how laid back it is. One of the other cool things about mariachi, too, is if you watch, like, if you watch the, the violinists, there'll be, like, three or four of them just standing there, potentially, and they'll all start to bring their bow to their instrument at different times. It's not mm-hmm. it's not this precision timing. And because there's multiple instruments, one can come in like, you know, a half measure late or something like that. And it makes no difference whatsoever. You can't hear it in the first place. But it's just like it's not meant to be this uh, intensely perfect precise. and precise yeah. music. And and that's actually seen in the way that it's passed along. Like you um you don't you can now, as of I think the sixties, you can go to schools um, sometimes public schools like elementary and middle and high schools, but there are some college uh, curricula that um, teach you mariachi. But right. traditionally, it was passed down just by practicing. Like, it wasn't written down. It was like, yeah. here's how you play Cielito uh, Lindo, you know? Um, and you would pick that up, or else you'd go watch your favorite mariachi band in the town plaza and, you know, basically be a groupie long enough that they'd let you start playing with them, that kind of thing. That was Coco. Did you ever see Coco? I did not, no. Ugh, one of the best uh, movies, uh, animated films. It's just fantastic. The, one, definitely the best-looking animated film I've ever seen. Wow. Uh, but that was the kid, and Coco was like a little mariachi groupie would, and would just like – and, you know, his parents didn't want him hanging around. Mm-hmm. Uh, like all of this stuff is kind of spot on. Yeah. Uh, really good movie, though, and great music. Um, but mariachi finally would make its way to the United States long before Coco in the 1940s in Los Angeles. 
Uh, obviously, has always had a, a, a strong, proud uh, Mexican American community there. Mm-hmm. And then up through the 1960s, which uh, during the Zoot Suit um, episode, we talked a lot about the Chicano movement in the 60s, mm-hmm. where Mexican immigrant communities all of a sudden kind of stood up for themselves and organized. And it was very much akin to the Black Power movement. And they adopted a lot of mariachi songs uh, as kind of part of their movement. Yeah, and some they repurposed. There's a famous song called De Calores um, that talks about how beautiful the, the landscape is in spring. And they basically repurposed it to, to be more of a metaphor for how, you know, the beauty of different people of color, you know. Um, yeah. Other ones were actually written. There's a song called El Picket Sign. Yeah, it's hilarious. So did you listen to it? I did, and it doesn't. It's a good song. It doesn't sound very mariachi. Uh, it more sounds like a 1960s acoustic guitar protest song, which is exactly what it was. But it was, you know, part of the um, the uh, United Farm Workers Union strike and the larger right. Chicano movement too. Uh, a big respect box again was checked in the 80s uh, when Linda Ronstadt came out with her album uh, Canciones. De Mi Padre, and this was a very big deal. I don't know if you remember this at the time, but it was, Linda Ronstadt was a huge star, mm-hmm. and I, I can't recommend the documentary about her enough. It's called The, the Sound of My Voice. One of the great uh, singers of, of all time uh, in any genre mm-hmm. uh, is Linda Ronstadt, and she has Mexican heritage, and not many people know this because she's very fair-skinned. Her name is Ronstadt, <laughs> right. is German. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, she, that's why she made that album, and she did interviews at the time, and, and the documentary talks a lot about her Mexican heritage. Mm-hmm. And it was, I think she's uh, part German, too, and there was, like you were talking about, the German influence in Mexico. Right. It was she, it was a big melting pot, and she was a part of that melting pot. I think her uh, either father or grandfather was Mexican. And so she came out with this album, and it was huge. It went double platinum, mm-hmm. and this was in the like mid-late 1980s, and it gave a huge boost to the mariachi music. Yeah, and she was playing with, like, some legit mariachi bands. I think she hosted basically three of them on her album. She played with one of them, Mariachi Vargas, on Saturday Night Live. Yeah, I mean, it was a a giant, enormous thing. I don't remember when it happened, but I can just imagine America being like, wait, what? And then listening to it and being like, oh, this is really good. But that also explains a longstanding mystery that I never understood before, which is why on the Mr. Plow episode of The Simpsons, when Barney is hanging out with Linda Ronstadt, she tries to adapt the the Mr. Plow song into Spanish. Really? Yeah. Or she's oh, like, Oh, that's funny. Senor Plow no es macho solamente un borracho, which oh, means my God. Mr. That's Plow amazing. is not manly, only a drunk. And it like it lasts like two, three seconds, but uh-huh. I, n- <laughs> I had no idea. Oh, man. That's, that was so random. God, don't you love that when a Simpsons joke hits, you know, 20 years later? <laughs> exactly 30 years, actually. That episode came wow. out in 92. That is crazy. Yeah. All right. Well, let's take another break. I'm going to go get my uh, spray uh, paint can lid. That's out. really tough to say, isn't it? It really is. I'd stumble up. You say it. Spray paint can lid. Yeah, see. I've been practicing in my head because I knew this moment <laughs> would come. I've been stumbling over it the whole time. So I'm going to keep practicing saying that. And uh, we'll be right back. Mm-hmm. 
something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery. But that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily, as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she as my father believed, a witch. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Spring. 
spray paint can lid. Very nice, everybody. Uh, Very nice. All right. So now we are in the mid-20th century, and Mexican cinema is all of a sudden finding its way into theaters all over the world. And that means Mexican music is going to be introduced in more places all over the world, which includes mariachi. And uh, it, depending on where you are in the world, it might have taken hold more than others. And this is, I think it is a really cool thing when something from one disparate culture makes its way to another place. And for some, like Hasselhoff in Germany, mm-hmm. like all of a sudden that place really loves this thing. And that happened in Yugoslavia. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the reasons is at the time, political leaders there um didn't want a lot of Soviet music. They didn't want a lot of American music. And they saw this Mexican music as neutral politically. Mm -hmm. So it was a little more, not encouraged, I guess, but not shunned. And all of a sudden, there were some parallels being drawn between the revolutionary traditions in both of those countries. And even today, in places like Serbia and Croatia, there are mariachi bands that play. Yeah, and this wasn't like a fringe thing. Like mariachi, from what I can tell, there's a really interesting Roads and Kingdoms article that Livia dug up um, that it basically says like, Mariachi was as as big as any music in Yugoslavia in like this. I'm guessing 50s, 60s, and 70s is the impression that I had. Have you ever heard Yugoslavian music? I listened to a little bit. <laughs> uh, well, I listened to a little bit of the mariachi. That's the other thing too. It doesn't matter if it's a Serb playing um, mariachi, a Japanese band playing mariachi, or um, you know uh, somebody from Texas playing mariachi. It is the same music. Mm-hmm. It's pretty cool. Yeah, I think honoring that tradition, like no one wants to put a spin on something that is so much just what it is. Yeah, certainly not sense? a disco spin. I looked. <laughs> uh, there are Japanese mariachi, one called Mariachi Samurai. It's been around for 20 plus years. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a confirmed mariachi band in China. As we will see there in the uh, the big festival happening this year, there is one from Sweden that's showing up. So it definitely, like, took hold in different parts of the world in the 20th century. Yeah, for sure. So, Chuck, I feel like we should talk about some notable mariachi. Yeah, and we should also point out that when we say mariachi, that can be a band, Mm -hmm. that can be an adjective describing the music, or it can be, as in the case of the great Robert Rodriguez film, El Mariachi, Mm -hmm. it can be a single individual is a mariachi. I still never saw it. I've only seen Desperado. I've seen it like 50 times, but I never moved on to El Mariachi. Uh, Well, move back. El Mariachi was the first one. Sure. And then Desperado was kind of a remake, but kind of not. Like Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2. Yeah, very much. And... yeah, in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. You should check out El Mariachi. It's the, the one he made for like $8,000 or whatever. I'll check it out. I'll check it out. Don't pressure me. It's good. <laughs> Back off, Bob. <laughs> All right, go ahead, tough guy. Fine. Tell me some no- some notable Mariachi. <laughs> All right. One of the first, actually, was um, the Quarteto Coculense. Okay. Um, no, I think that's that's good. <laughs> there was a guy named Justo Villa, and he um, was the first mariachi to perform, or his, his quartet was, at the Mexican capital back in 1905. They were also the first ones to put this on wax as early yeah. as 1908. So these guys were holding it down. Because remember, mariachi, it, it had only been 50, 60 years old tops 
when it was first being started to be played, you know, in the rural areas. So these guys were the first in Mexico City playing this stuff in, at the turn of the 20th century. Uh, that's right. We could also mention Mariachi Vargas. Uh, this is a tough one. De Tecatlitlan. Te- yeah? Tecalatitlan. Tecal, say it again. Tecalatitlan. Oh, okay. Tecali- is that right? No. I added a T <laughs> just to make oh, it man. easier. I think you I think you said it right the first time. That that's a tough one. But um this was one of the more famous uh maybe the most famous and longest running mariachi group ever. Mm-hmm. Uh they were founded in 1898 and is still around today. Um obviously over the years they just, you know, swapping people in and out, but it's still still the same band under the same name, which is pretty cool. And they really kind of established uh the mariachi style from that region. And uh, use that harp early on. Yeah. So they've been playing since the 19th century. In the 30s, they made their way to Mexico City because, again, this is like now the epicenter of mariachi music. And I don't know how or exactly what they did, but they were named during that decade the official mariachi of the Mexico City Police Department. I thought that was really funny. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> like, did they follow them around on, like, raids and stuff and, like, play I some background know. music or— That would be pretty great. Um, They also started to show up in movies, um, and they would play – they would back up a guy named Pedro Infante, who was like a a pretty huge star during the Mexican golden age of the 30s to the 50s. Um, And these movies were typically vehicles of his, and I'm guessing those were a lot of the ones that made their way to Yugoslavia. Yeah, probably. Uh, Let's just pick out a couple of more of these. Because uh, we could just list people all day long. Sure. I'm gonna. Well, since we mentioned these guys earlier, uh, we need to shout out Miguel Martinez and Jesus uh, Cordoba, who yep. were from the band uh, Mariachi Mexico de Pepe Villa, mm-hmm. and they were from the 1950s. And those are the two guys who worked out how to use two trumpets together. Uh, and it sounds like oh, you just played the same thing at the same time and same melody, but that that wasn't exactly what they did. Uh, they they mixed it up, and I think they played in harmony, and all of a sudden, two trumpets were a thing. Yeah. And there's another uh, group, Mariachi Los Camperos, that was founded by uh, Nadi Cano, um, and he really kind of, like, whipped this, this existing band into shape um, and got them into Carnegie Hall in 1964. They were the first mariachi group to perform there. Um, they opened their own restaurant, La Fonda de los Camperos in L.A., and that explains why uh, Vincente Rodriguez was in, is basically in a Mexican restaurant, or I guess just a restaurant in, in the two videos I've seen of his. Um, so that became kind of like a, a thing, like you would have your own like home base where you could perform every mm-hmm. every night of the week if you wanted to and also probably attract more business. Plus, you're making that restaurant money on the side, too. Yeah, and you know, highly recommend if you go to Los Angeles, you want to do something fun one night. There are quite a few restaurants there that have not the roaming the tables mariachi, but the full like 12 to 14 symphonic on a stage performance scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is a lot of fun to go to these places and get some great food and margaritas and and listen to these performances. So look it up. It's online. Oh. I don't have any. I can't, the one I went to, I, could, I texted my friend, but he never answered, so I can't remember the name of it. I'll tell you another place to, to get all that same experience is Epcot Center. <laughs> Are you talking about Mariachi Cobra? Yeah. They've been the house um, <laughs> Epcot Mexico Pavilion Mariachi Band since 1982. 
Not a bad gig. That's a pretty good streak. That's a 40-year streak. Well, I love that they're just like, why hire, like, these guys are great, so let's just keep them on forever. Yeah, exactly. And that band was like, uh, Florida's pretty great. We're just going to move here. Uh, if you notice, we keep talking about men, uh, like many, many musical genres that we've seen that we've covered throughout the years, mm-hmm. except for disco, actually, mm-hmm. notably, is that women have had a harder time uh, getting a toe in the pool. And mariachi is no different. Uh, at the beginning, it was exclusively men. And they were playing in these sort of rough-and-tumble places where people were getting boozed up on cerveza, and it was not seen as an acceptable thing for women to do in the mid-19th century in Mexico. Uh, But as Livia is keen to point out, there always have been exceptions. Uh, Beginning in the early 1900s, there was a 13-year-old named uh, Rosa Quirino who had played with male mariachi bands but uh, eventually went on to lead her own group and apparently used to carry a piece to protect herself on the road. Yeah. Because it was dangerous business. I also saw that she would um, threaten hecklers and people who harassed her while she and her band were playing with it. She would say, "Uh, gentlemen, we are working, and she would produce her gun and just let them see, like, she was not to be trifled with. She also wore, like, bandoleros, like Pancho Villa. Oh, cool. Yeah, she sounds pretty cool for sure. Uh, In the early, um, I'm sorry, late 1940s, uh, there start you started to see some uh, bands that were all women, some mariachi groups in Mexico City. Mm-hmm. Uh, eventually, they would make their way to Los Angeles. In the U.S., the first all-female uh, mariachi group was Las Rancheritas, mm-hmm. uh, and this was in Alamo, Texas, in 1967. And I believe there is even now uh, an all-LGBTQ plus mariachi group mm-hmm. with the very first transgender woman in the history of the genre with Natalia Melendez. Yeah, Mariachi Arcorius. Arcorius. Yeah, I mean, things have come a long way. Yeah, there's also another one worth mentioning, Flor de Toloache. They're from New York. I think they're a four-piece. They are really amazing, too. But even even still today, even with all of these, like, really great all-female mariachi bands— um, they still are just kind of viewed differently than the male mm-hmm. performers are. There was an um, anthropologist in 2013 named Mary Lee Mulholland, and she basically just started studying the difference between male and female mariachi performers and found that the male performers are typically expected to represent like that kind of rural, rough-and-tumble, body, um, humorous sometimes, uh, like just macho kind of vibe. Well, the the female performers were expected to, like, be sober and, like, dignified right. and pretty. Don't forget pretty. Had to right. be pretty, too. And then they were judged on that. And, I, I mean, that's—I guess it's to be expected, but I, I, I get the impressions that the um, female performers were still— just be just treated differently depending on where they performed and they said by and large they tended to to um, prefer performing at weddings and baptisms and that kind of stuff rather than yeah. like at bars and like the public plazas where the male performers typically go who wants to be heckled no and objectified and have to flash your gun yeah exactly <laughs> what else you got uh i think that's about it i mean the the last section here is just where to Hear some mariachi music, and I think you can you can hire them out in your town mm-hmm. to play a party if you want. I bet you every big city and many small towns, if you look up on uh, the interwebs, 
will have mariachi that you can hire. You can go to look up and see if there are Mexican restaurants that have that uh, music you can go check out. Uh, there are festivals now, and and certainly in Mexico and all over the world, where you can go hear lots of mariachi, mm-hmm. or just dial some up on your favorite uh, music service. Yeah, you could do a lot worse than um, starting with Vincente Fernandez. Is that your guy? He is definitely. <laughs> he's a good gateway mariachi performer, I think. You know. Yeah. Oh, by the way, shout out since I mentioned women in disco. Uh, Rolling Stone magazine just came out with their, they're doing a bunch of top 200 lists. Mm -hmm. They came out with their top 200 dance songs of all time. Uh, And not just disco, just like club, anything. And Donna Summer was number one. Oh, nice. With I Feel Love, one of the greatest songs ever. That is a good one. That is a great one. You're right. Well, since Chuck doesn't have anything else and I don't either, I think that means with everybody that it's time for listener mail. Yeah, we're going to call this breaking news. It's fun when a stuff you should know mystery is oh, eventually yeah. solved. Holy cow. And uh, Australia woke up and started emailing us one after the other mm-hmm. uh, around midday Georgia time today because the Somerton Man has been solved. Yeah. Somerton Man mystery. I'm like ambivalent about this. I, I don't know how I feel. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Did you want it to remain a mystery? Yeah, I think I did, actually. Yeah, I don't think I'm there sorry. was any harm in it remaining a mystery forever. And I almost feel like this guy just kind of cheated. All right. Well, here we go. Uh, <laughs> long, long time listener, first time writer from Adelaide, Australia. I've got an excuse to write in. I thought you and your listeners might be interested in breaking news. After exhuming the body last year, Professor Derek Abbott, boo, a researcher at the University of Adelaide has completed DNA matching. No, oh, I get what you mean. Mm-hmm. He didn't do like just good detective work. Oh. Unless you want to discount DNA as good detective work. I mean, there's that show called The New Detectives, and it's all about this kind of thing, but I don't know. All right. So we like the old detectives. Yeah. In this in this particular case, I got no problem uh, with using DNA evidence to capture contemporary murderers. How about that? Oh, right. Or to exculpate and exonerate. <laughs> yeah. You sound like Jackie Childs all of a sudden. <laughs> I don't even know who that is. <laughs> oh, Jackie Childs from Seinfeld? Yeah. Yeah, totally did. <laughs> All right, Kramer. Uh, Summerton Man was Carl Webb, an engineer and instrument maker from Melbourne who came to Adelaide seeking a rec- uh, reconnection with his estranged wife. Uh, the name of the Thai, T. Keen, was his brother-in-law. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Book of Persian Poetry is still a mystery, so you got that going for you. Okay, that's good. Uh, and thanks for the show. And that is from Rafe and many others, but Rafe was the first person we got to. So. Yeah. Or they got to us. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Rafe, and everybody for sending that in. Um, yeah. Who knows? Well, at least the the Tamam Shud part is still a mystery, okay? Yeah, that's right. Well, if you want to get in touch with us like Rafe did and kind of bring us down, uh, me at least, you can do that via email. Send it off to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. 
Join me, Emily Tish Sussman, every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.